This is DIA Connections. I have a very simple agenda. I set out to shine some long overdue and positive light on the American men and women who wear our military uniform. It is something that's more important than I am. Glad you found your way back to DIA Connections or found us for the very first time. Either way, it's all good. In case you're not familiar with the DIA, let me give you a quick overview and I promise I'll be brief. Created in 1961, the Defense Intelligence Agency is a Department of Defense and Intelligence Community government agency that collects and analyzes intelligence about the capabilities and intentions of foreign militaries and governments. We then give that intelligence to our military and warfighters and to our policymakers so they can make informed decisions. You can probably guess the kinds of things we're interested in, like how many airplanes does Iran have or what are the nuclear intentions of North Korea. But as we were researching ideas for this podcast and hearing suggestions for stories, sometimes we would even say to ourselves, what? We do that? Really? What does DIA have to do with the Doobie Brothers? Or why would DIA care about opioids? What's the connection there? And that's when we realized we have a podcast. So welcome to DIA Connections. We've got a couple of really cool podcasts coming up, and they're going to be great shows, because we're going to Hollywood. DIA has been to Hollywood before. You might have seen us on the short-lived NBC TV series The Brave, or quick mentions in episodes of NCIS, or even in classic or not-so-classic movies like Spies Like Us. Most government agencies have Hollywood liaisons whose job is to make sure that their image and message is correctly represented in television and movies. Dale Dye is someone who's made a career of doing exactly that, making sure the men and women that serve our country are accurately portrayed in military settings. DIA's primary mission is to provide intelligence to our warfighters, and Dye's mission is to do the same, just Hollywood style. But wait, who's Dale Dye, you say? Dale Dye is the go-to guy in Hollywood when directors want their war scenes to look and feel authentic. He's been hired as a technical advisor on more than 50 films, and I'm talking big-time movies. How's this list? Born on the Fourth of July, JFK, Natural Born Killers, Platoon, Forrest Gump, and Saving Private Ryan. It's quite a list. This guy knows what he's doing. Even though he's been at it for more than three decades, From time to time, even the best have to ask for a job recommendation. How would you like to have a recommendation like this one? From Mr. Tom Hanks? He writes, The HBO miniseries Band of Brothers was another light-year leap in my work with Captain Dale Dye. He has supervised actors both technically and emotionally through training periods that are actually intense rehearsals. Dale Dye is already a filmmaker. He will soon be entrusted with the job of director, perhaps by you. Should that happen, you and the project would be in the best of hands. That's quite a nice reference from an important Hollywood guy. Dai founded Warriors, Inc. in 1984. It's a business with the stated agenda of making war movies more realistic and to improve screen portrayals of military men and women. He wanted to take his personal experiences in Vietnam and have them accurately portrayed on screen. 
So Dai went to Hollywood with more than a dream. He went with a bit of attitude. And he has lots of attitude. Dale discussed his film career and other aspects of his life with me and also in front of an audience at DIA. I've been a, a movie fan all my life. And I think I've seen every military movie there is. And the common denominator was they pissed me off. <laughs> and the reason is because they didn't really reflect who we are. Yeah, you know, they got the uniform right and they put the right weapon in our hands and, and they put the right gear on our back. Let's get the cameras in position, let's get everybody. But I, I, I did not see in the performance a depiction of who we really are, how we think, how we feel, how we relate to each other, that dark sense of humor that we all know about, those of us who've worn a uniform. Um, and I said, well, that's what's missing. They're not showing who we really are. Uh, they're missing that. They're going right over, that's passing right over their head. And so I said, well, hell, I could fix that. Fix that in me at Paris Island. I, I think I can unscrew this. <laughs> and, and so it, with nothing more than that concept in mind, that I had a better way to tell the story, uh, or a better way to get actors to tell the story, uh, I took off and went to LA. Um, and uh, I really, I knew absolutely nothing about showbiz. No idea how movies are made. Uh, you know, there's a camera and there's a guy out in front of it and then you put some light on it and that was about the size of it. Uh, and so uh, I started hanging around Hollywood movie lots, MGM, Universal, that sort of thing. And uh, I, I didn't know. I needed somebody that would listen to me. Let me tell them what I thought, uh, that there was a better way to build this mousetrap. I had, I had learned to read the trade papers, uh, Hollywood Reporter and Daily Variety and that sort of thing. Um, and I discovered one day uh, a little piece in Army Archard's column that said a, relative, a heretofore relatively unknown writer-director uh, by the name of Oliver Stone uh, who was going to do a film about his experiences in Vietnam based on his personal experiences as a combat infantryman. Uh, Oliver was with the 25th ID and with uh, uh, the cab for a while. And so I said, well, look, I, I got to find this guy. If I can find this guy, he'll get it. If anybody gets it, he'll understand what I want to do to make the actors understand who we are and to make the film better. I did get myself in front of Oliver Stone. Um, interesting guy. I went into my best two minute drill and I said, look, we have to train these people. We, the business of being in combat, especially in Southeast Asia in, in the war in Vietnam, is so far removed from the average person's experience that will never convey the reality of it unless you let me take them and train them. At this point, let me say if you've never seen Platoon, which came out in 1986, really, what are you waiting for? That movie is great. And that's not just my opinion. And the winner is Platoon. Platoon's success was due in large part to Dai's unique training of actors that you might be familiar with, like Charlie Sheen, William Defoe, Tom Berenger, Forrest Whitaker, and Johnny Depp. 
I took them into the mountains of the Philippines, uh, northwest of uh, Manila. Um, and for two weeks, they lived exactly as we lived in Southeast Asia. I mean, they dug their own hole and they lived in it. And those big ants that eat you alive, they were right there. And there was absolutely no contact with civilians whatsoever. They lived and died based on what I told them and their ability to carry that out. The winner is Oliver Stone. I think that through this award, you're really acknowledging the Vietnam veteran. And I think what you're saying is that for the first time, you really understand what happened over there. Throughout the day, and the day begins before dawn, zero five, they're up and they're pushing. And when they start humping, they hump 65, 70 pounds. They learn to sweat. They learn what tired means, not how you act tired, but what it really means. And that comes across. Um, and, and so once a day, they were never able to ask me anything beyond saying, yes, sir, and do it now throughout the day. And they only ate twice a day unless they pissed me off, and then they only ate once a day. And chow was all rations. They had to cook them themselves and so on and so forth. But one time during the day, usually before chow, we would have this thing called stand down. And it was an evening session in which you could ask me anything you wanted to know. And actors are like little dry sponges. So when you pour on the water, they swell with knowledge. And, uh, and I wanted them to have that knowledge, to have that insight. And so they would ask me psychological questions, things about how you feel. And, and I was committed at that point uh, never to quit answering a question until I was sure that young gentleman got what I was trying to say. And that was a tremendously rewarding experience. My special thanks go to my cast and crew, to Captain Dale Dye, who gave his heart and soul for the movie. What I thought was missing was training the mind, training the heart, training the guts, uh, the emotions. Uh, how do you get there? If I can get you to that point where you understand that, where you understand, unlike most actors, that there's something more important than you, man, you know, I've given you an enormous insight. And if you can, if you then have the talent to carry that insight into the performance that you're doing on screen, bing, bang, boom. You must have had some quitters. At one time, somebody must have said, no way, I'm not doing that. I really have not had, um, with one exception, and I won't tell you who that was, um, I, I have never had anybody quit. After Platoon uh, and all the attendant press and so on and so forth, it became pretty clear what Captain Dye's method was. And so anybody, any actor that was going to get involved in this said, okay, I'm in for it now. I got I to gotta go. But, but the neat thing was that it had succeeded. And, and so it wasn't that I'm going to go through all of this and then end up with just a, a sore back and sore feet and nothing in my mind. I've had him whine and moan, but then who doesn't? After a short break, Dale Dye takes us back to the very beginning and his less-than-stellar attempts to enter the Naval Academy. This is DIA Connections. Russia. China. Iran. North Korea. 
transnational terrorism. Do you know the threats? For more than 50 years, DIA officers have delivered defense intelligence expertise for our nation's leaders and warfighters. In the tradition of DIA's unclassified Soviet military power series, we bring you a new set of products that examines the greatest threats facing the U.S. today. Earlier this year, we released China Military Power. Now, Iran Military Power examines the core capabilities of Iran's military. Iran has expanded its capabilities and roles as both an unconventional and conventional threat in the Middle East. This report provides details on Iran's defense and military goals, strategy, plans, and intentions. Learn what DI's top intelligence experts have concluded about these complex threats and their potential impact on the United States and its allies. These assessments add an important viewpoint to the public conversation. Join us online. This is DIA Connections. Providing intelligence to our policymakers is a strategic advantage for our nation. Our leaders rely on this information to make accurate and timely decisions. As a technical advisor on films and television shows, our guest, Dale Dye, serves in this manner for Hollywood producers and directors. Dye's big break began by showing Oliver Stone how to do it right. Not surprising, because his affinity for war movies began in the show-me state. I'm from uh, southeast Missouri. Um, note how I say the state. So uh, I grew up in the, in the kind of the doorway to the Ozarks. Um, and uh, I, uh, I remember early on uh, going to see movies. And my, my dad or somebody would take me and I'd, I'd see a movie. And I'd see like... Uh, Hell Below and, uh, and To Hell and Back and Up Periscope and, and all of these movies. And, and I just, I had this image in my mind of being able to see what's on the other side of the hill. And, and the military looked to me to be a way to do that. I began to press to go to military school because I wanted to get involved in this as quickly as possible. So uh, I was allowed to go to uh, Missouri Military Academy, which is in the state of Missouri. Um, and a terrific classical education. Uh, and so that just furthered my interest. I mean, I was just eating this military stuff alive uh, without actually having any great experience in it but besides uh, junior ROTC. And, uh, and so I thought the way to do this, the way I'll make this happen, is I'll go to the United States Naval Academy. That's what I'll do. So I, uh, I played a lot of football and chased a lot of girls and... Uh, and didn't do that much studying. So when it came to uh, uh, taking the entrance exams for the Naval Academy, I flunked it. Uh, not only flunked it once, but I flunked it two or three times. And, uh, and so I knew that wasn't going to happen. Now, all the money had run out. Uh, there was no, uh, no way that I was going to pay for college because, you know, they, you had to be smart to get a scholarship in those days. Government wasn't going to give you anything. Um, and so I said, well, look— uh, I was really t sort of feeling sorry for myself, sitting, sitting on the curb on 10th and Pine Streets in St. Louis, Missouri. It was dreary and horrible and snowing, and, and, and I said, you know, I looked up, and here's this sign, and it's got this Marine in dress blues, and he's got this lantern jaw and this 
beetle brow and these steel laser-like eyeballs, and he's pointing right at me, and he says, ready? It just says that one word, ready? And I thought, you know, by God, I think I am. And I went in and enlisted in the United States Marine Corps. That was, that was December of 63, so, um, so I went then to boot camp in uh, January 64. I served in Vietnam in 1965 and 1967 through 1970. During that time, he survived 31 major combat operations. But his path overseas would certainly be considered a fortuitous one. Originally in the Marine Corps, I was uh, an infantryman. I was, a, I was an 81 mortarman. And um, this is before I went to Vietnam. So I, uh, I really got bored. Uh, I got bored looking at the guy's pack in front of me and walking up and down the hills at Camp Pendleton. Um, and one day, there's this guy shows up out where we were doing a live fire exercise, and he's got a camera around his neck, and he's got a notebook, and he's and uh, he, a sergeant, I think. And, and I, I said, who the hell, what are you doing? And so I went over and talked to him, and I said, who are you? you know, and he introduced himself. And I said, well, what are, you, what are you doing out here? I mean, he said, well, I'm a Marine Corps combat correspondent. And I said, what the hell is that? And he said, well, I'm, I'm assigned to write little stories and take pictures about everything Marines are doing. And so I got to like this guy, and, and I sort of shared, you know, uh, chow with him, and then I had a beer with him, and, and I said, well, tell me about this. And he said, Di, this is the greatest dodge in the Marine Corps. You can go anywhere and do anything as long as you can write a little story about it or take a picture of it. And I said, Jesus, you know, I was, I was the editor of my high school newspaper. Uh, I, I know a little bit about this. And you, you mean to tell me? That I can go, if, if I want to fly in a helicopter today, I can do that. And if I want to go ride in a rigid inflatable boat tomorrow, I can do that. He said, yeah, you can do that. And I ended up getting accepted into, into being a combat correspondent. I really didn't know uh, what was involved until about uh, six months later uh, when I got orders to Vietnam. And there, then I found out why they call it combat correspondent. Because the deal was uh, you had to run to the sound of the guns. And that was a matter of pride. You, you did that. You went where the fighting was. So was that your first indication or appreciation of what war was really like? Anybody who's, who's only thought about or, or read about uh, combat doesn't get how, how visceral it is, how, how, how close to the end you can be at any time. I was there in Vietnam for a long time. Uh, I got nailed a couple of times. Um, I got the enemy marksmanship badge. Uh, and, and I was through some, I didn't know it at the time, of course, but I was through some very historical fights. Uh, I was in Hue uh, in uh, the Tet Offensive of 1968, and, and I was at Quezon for a while, and, and I was up at uh, Contian at the Hill Fights. Uh, and so um, you you learn about those things, and I and I think I think I learned more about being well. I learned a lot about being a combat marine, but I but I also learned a lot about life. I learned a lot about human beings, um, and a lot of the, your prejudice and your crap and your preconceptions and everything else uh, those go away, and they go away. They're they're well. You're well rid of them, and I think I think when you go through an experience like that or a series of experiences like that, 
and and you're working with people um, that you otherwise would never have met or talked to or anything else, and you're right shoulder to shoulder to, with them, and, and they are indeed your brothers, uh, and they have to be, and they know it and you know it. Um, it gives you such a brilliant perspective on life. You met people. It was America's great mixing bowl. Uh, you met people that you otherwise never would have met. Um, and and you, t- you had to talk to them and you had to live with them. And, and, uh, and it broadened, I think, every young American's experience. The hardships faced by veterans trying to assimilate back into society after war has been well documented. The same can be said for Captain Dai. His life after Vietnam, prior to his film career, was anything but a seamless transition. Dale, let me read you something that you wrote, and then I'd like you to comment on it. I was emotionally shattered after combat tours. For nearly a decade, I struggled through my life in sort of a daze, trying to justify the sacrifices I made and observed in Southeast Asia. Can you describe for me exactly what you were talking about here? Clearly, you were struggling. What was going on in your life at that time? I, I suppose it was a an early form of what people now call post-traumatic stress disorder. Although I, I, I argue with the with the D in that. I think it's post-traumatic stress, and I don't think it's a disorder. I just think it's something that you you deal with, you suffer with. Look, I was I was very lucky. Uh, I had stayed in the Marine Corps, and the Marine Corps had agreed to let me stay. Uh, and so they guarded me uh, when I would do weird things. Um, I mean, assuming I didn't kill somebody, the, uh, you know, they would sort of overlook it. They'd look at the ribbons on my chest and say, well, he had a tough time, you know, and, and, and they'd be sort of forgiving of it. Um, but I really had, had a, a very hard time uh, talking to civilians. Um, I didn't want anything to do with civilians. I thought civilians were a gaggle of pukes and, and you know, were just barely worth fighting for. Um, and, and I had that, I had that attitude and that's, that's poison. That's a poisonous attitude. Um, and, and I had periods where, because I wouldn't talk to civilians, uh, that those memories and, and feelings were eating at my guts. And I found that, um, that that could get serious. And then you start self-medicating, you know, you start drinking too much. And there wasn't much dope around in those days, uh, at least on base. So you didn't, that wasn't a big problem. But, but you, you, you feel sorry for yourself and, and, uh, and you've got to find a way out of it. You've got to find a way out of those dark places. And, and what I found, um, and I think this is relevant to today's young men and women who are coming home from the wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, there is a feeling that no one can understand what I've been through. No one can understand how I feel unless they've been there themselves. And so there's no use talking uh, to my wife. There's no use talking to my girlfriend. There's no use talking to this guy over here who's in class with me because he won't get it. He won't understand it. Uh, and that, that's deadly. That's toxic. Because what happens is all of those things stay in your gut and they begin to eat from the inside out. And, and, and it can get serious. And then you get into your own little bubble and your own little cloud and your own little world. And that's, that's a horrible place to be. So how do you get out of that place? Was there, was there someone or something that helped you get your life back in order? I found if I would commit one act of bravery, one act of courage, and that is to start talking about it. And I, I didn't give a damn whether you knew anything about it or not. If I, if, if I was in the mood to talk about it, I was going to make you listen. 
and I guess I was boring as hell, and, and in, some cla- in some cases, most of you know, people wanted to just wring my neck. But what I found is I could be relatively eloquent. I could explain things, um, it would, despite my lack of formal education, that, that people could understand, um, in-depth things. Um, and, and then they would get interested. And I found this to be a kind of a catharsis. I, I found myself getting that, that poison out. And I started writing. And I've always been a facile writer. Uh, so I wrote a, a novel uh, about my experiences in Huey. And that became, it, it's been a week or so on a, on a New York Times list. And, and, and suddenly I realized, hey, this is, this is the way out of the dark. There's no doubt that Dale Dye was able to resurrect his life after his experiences in Vietnam. And by 1998, with his Hollywood career well underway, he was hired as the senior military advisor on a movie that joined a list of all-time great war movies, Saving Private Ryan. The opening scene on Omaha Beach is really unlike anything else I've seen. It was real and riveting. And the first time I saw it, it took my breath away. It was groundbreaking, and it won five Academy Awards, including Best Director, Steven Spielberg. And I love this. Listen to what Spielberg said about the movie. I didn't anticipate the success of the movie. In early screenings, certain associates and other people in my life were saying that I made it too tough. I feared that almost nobody would see it, because the word of mouth would spread quickly after the first 25 minutes. Well, Spielberg was wrong, but he was wrong in a good way. Those scenes were so intense and realistic. And with the help of, guess who? It was uh, an interesting experience. We had, on the day that we shot the opening sequences, we had about a thousand men on the beach. And these were all Irish National Guard guys who, you know, had to be taught to wear leggings and not to put the buckles on the inside so that they immediately fall. And so we had a thousand of them. We had 14 armored vehicles, and we had seven ships at sea, and I had to control them all on one radio. Uh, So I got my Eisenhower uh, fix that day, standing watching this happen, and all I had was two of my NCOs wearing earbuds uh, down on the beach, and their primary mission was to try to see that nobody got run over by one of the tanks, and and we let that thing roll, and I told Spielberg, I said, listen, boss, um, when you say action, and we bring those landing craft in and the ramps go down and the, the explosions start going off. I said, you can say cut until you're blue in the face. Nothing's going to happen. These guys are going. That's just it. This is an assault and they're into it and they're going. And he said, well, what? Ha-? I said, never mind. I, it's just let's do it. And he did. He said, OK, action, let's roll. We had seven cameras going and, uh, and we brought them in. And it was uh, an amazing, amazing sequence. Of course, you've received high marks for your directing, but you also became an actor. How'd that happen? I've always had a kind of an outgoing personality. I don't know where it comes from. I guess it's my Irish heritage or something, but, um, but I've always been that guy. But I never thought of it. I thought of it as valuable in terms of entertaining you around the campfire, or I thought it was valuable in terms of... Uh, 
uh, teaching, when I was teaching in the military and that sort of thing, if you can be interesting, people learn. I was always that outgoing sort of A-type personality. Um, but I hadn't thought about it in terms of show business initially. But what happened was that, that a few directors began to see me teaching. And when I'm, I am who I am anytime you're around me, so this is me. And they would see me doing this sort of thing, you know, and they'd say, Jesus, the guy's doing an act. Look at him. You know, he's, <laughs> that's his gig, that's his set. And they would say, look, if, if we want you to do this in front of the camera. And I'd say, oh, no, you know, uh, yeah, you got to go to school. And you know. I'd say, no, man, if you go to acting school, nobody will hire you. Just go be you. Uh, and, and so I did. Uh, I got a little shot at, at, in the first film I ever did called Invader from Mars. And then um, Oliver Stone decided to cast me as, as the company commander, Captain Harris, in, uh, in Platoon. And that got mentioned by critics and so on and so forth. And the next thing you know, uh, you know, nothing succeeds like success. Suddenly I'm, I'm an actor. You always play the tough guy, Commander, or, or the leader with a very strong and confident demeanor. My personal favorite is the scene from Casualties of War with Michael J. Fox. And if anyone hasn't seen that, you should just YouTube it. Just YouTube Dale Dye, Michael J. Fox, Casualties of War. I'm aware of why you're here, Erickson. Can you talk about that scene? It was funny. You know, Brian De Palma directed it. You're in that report recommending reserve for a bronze star. He pulled you out of a VC tunnel, boy. We were shooting in Thailand. And... Uh, I had met Michael a few times, and we'd, we'd, we hadn't really run a, a complete rehearsal of the scene. You know, we just said the lines, you know, to, to get a feel for what was going on. And, uh, and we, we got ready to do it, and, and we blocked it so that the cameras knew where they were going and, and so on and so forth. And then I, you know, I was just waiting for action because I was going to fire on him. And, uh, and De Palma said, and action. And I went, you know, and, I st- and, and you sh- Fox's eyes just about rolled back in his head, you know. He didn't realize I was going to go after him. And, uh, and he got—the funny thing was that um, we, we had some fans blowing because so, it was hot in the jungle. And the more I nailed him and the more I chewed on him, Michael started to sweat. And you could see the sweat coming down, his, dripping off his nose and things like that. So I knew I was doing—just keep it up, you know, to go after him. Yeah, that was a that was a fun scene, and you get you get fun scenes like that. Dale, you've definitely lived an interesting and fascinating life. Is there any one thing or aspect of it that you're most proud of? There's a lot of things. I mean, look, I have lived an extraordinary life. Uh, uh, I've done a lot of things that that you know people dream about doing, um, and and you know I've got I've got children who aren't completely screwed up, and I've got I've got a nice wife and. And I don't have to worry about where the next meal is coming from. But I think I think what I always refer back to, what 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 made me who I am, really is my service in the Marine Corps. Um, I think I think I learned how to defocus on myself and focus on a larger issue, on a, on a mission, on an objective. Uh, and that was that's an invaluable lesson. Um, so the thing that I'm proud of is, is that is two decades of, of wearing um, our American military uniform and, and being able to serve this nation, as cliche as that sounds. I, I really, you know, at my age, 
you know, and I'm getting very close to just as old as dirt. But uh, at, at my age, I think I look back and say, um, I'm really glad I did that. Dale, thank you so much for hanging out with us, talking with us today. But before I let you go, I have one more thing. It's not a question, though. I'm going to request something. Would you rip into me drill sergeant style? Just (laughs) no holds barred. Just let me have it. Listen to me. Don't look at me with those beady eyeballs. I don't want to see them bouncing off me. If I have to retch out and unscrew your head and defecate right in the middle of your shoulders, that's precisely what I'll do. Is that clear? Ha! Ha! Oh, that was great. Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening, and please look for future podcasts to hear stories about our continuing efforts to find missing in action from the Vietnam War and about a rock and roll Hall of Famer who works for the Department of Defense. Please check out the DIA on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and of course, DIA.mil. Thanks for listening to DIA Connections. (laughs) 